Today we are going to look at one of the hottest areas of study or conversation, probably a better description. So hot that churches are burnt down. I hope Grace survives this talk today. So it's kind of controversial and there are some very definite opposition to anything that teaches against the idea of homosexuality. But when you come across passages that deal with it, you have to deal with it. So I'm going to let the chips fall where they will, and we'll deal with it. And there is a biblical perspective on it that is radically 180 degrees, actually 360 and then 180 degrees from the way the world approaches this viewpoint. And I believe that the biblical approach is the most compassionate of all of the approaches. Not only most compassionate, but obviously the most realistic and deals with the the reality of all that goes on on the issue of homosexuality. So we're going to look at 26 and 27. So uh, obviously the empire, city of Rome, this was a hot issue in the first century as well. In fact, there was a lot of homosexuality in the first century and there were periods of other times, perhaps there has always been this problem and this issue. Sometimes it goes on the surface. So in the city of Rome, this was an issue, at least Paul wrote in the book of Romans, but he's writing on a broader perspective. He's writing to the entire empire. This is a problem worldwide in the first century, as it is in our culture as well. Since we haven't met in so long, this is kind of an overview of the whole passage, so we're kind of in the end of the passage. Verse 18, basically Paul starts his doctrinal section of the whole book, and in that he's developing the idea of the solution to evil. The only solution is what God has provided. Otherwise, man is under wrath, because all are ungodly and unrighteous. We are all suppressors of the truth, and therefore we're under wrath. And if you wondered why, verses 19 through 23, he gives us the reasons why mankind is under wrath. And in a nutshell, man has rejected the revelation that God has given to every single human being that has ever lived and will ever live, God reveals himself. Now, that revelation is adequate for condemnation, therefore they are without excuse, is what Paul says. So he gives reasons why man is under wrath. And then in, uh, well, verse 18, it's in the present tense. (coughs) The wrath of God is revealed. You can see it. You can objectively observe it, take note of it. And then in 24 through 32, we have the rendering of God's wrath. In other words, this is how the wrath of God can be seen. In other words, this is how it is manifested. Now, it's manifested differently than what you see, for example, in the Old Testament. It's not manifested like a visible Genesis flood that wipes out all of humanity over the face of the earth except one family. It's not like Sodom and Gomorrah where fire falls down from heaven. But it is just as visible and it's just as real as any judgment that you can study Old Testament or New Testament. So it's not like the ones that you're familiar with, but it is, in fact, wrath poured out. So we've seen that God reveals himself. And I mentioned and emphasized as we were going through the passage that that revelation is clear. 
It's clearly seen. It's evident. You can't miss it. No one really misses it. So it is realized. 19 through 20. I just use that because it fits with my pattern here. You'll see the pattern. So we have ours. So that makes man responsible to that revelation. That's a biblical principle. Whenever God reveals Himself in however much or in whatever way, that makes mankind accountable to that revelation. So man is responsible. Man rejects that revelation because we are by nature suppressors of the truth. That's verse twenty-one. Also, verse twenty-one: Man rationalizes away that truth, and he comes up with other ideas. He substitutes other theories, other ideas that replace God. Common theory today is God is not creator. Everything came about as a result of evolutionary processes. It's an idea of man that. Really has no scientific basis, so man rationalizes away that revelation that God has given. So now it has an effect on him, and since we're using R's, we have to find a word that has an R. So we use reprobation, verse twenty-two. This is the depravity that results. In other words, there's the deadening. There's a there's an effect. In fact, in the total person, there's a degeneration. And you might even consider this part of the wrath being poured out is you just can't escape consequences, particularly of of sin. So there's reprobation, verse twenty-two, and then man replaces God with something else. He can't live without that emptiness filled with something. Takes all kinds of forms. Depends on the individual. The broad picture is idolatry, and. Whatever form it is, it is a form of replacing God, and that's the essence of idolatry. Whatever you replace God with, that is your idol. So it can take the form of simply materialism, pride, immorality, whatever, popularity, ultimately pride, whatever, whatever it may be. So we replace the one true God with idolatry, and because of that, in other words, these are the reasons for wrath. This is the reasons why mankind is under wrath, and why you can visibly see it. So, in verse twenty-four through thirty-two, we have wrath again. <laughs> we have wrath, and it's visibly displayed, visibly poured out. And we've seen that it comes in three forms. Verses we saw verses twenty-four through twenty-five, the rendering of wrath twenty-four through thirty-two, twenty-four through twenty-five. It can manifest itself in physical ways. Probably the most prominent way is pouring of wrath. Is God allowing? In fact, the text says God gave them up. That's wrath. For God to take the restraints off and let people just follow their own human desires, their own human nature. <coughs> Ends up in disaster, whether it be in an individual basis or whether the、uh, cumulative is in a whole culture. An entire culture sometimes receives the judgment of God, where God eliminates them, like the Babylonians or the Egyptians or whatever, different periods of time. But you can see it in a in an individual as well. So it has physical impacts, and it results in physical impurity. At least that's the way I kind of title it. God abandons them, verse twenty-four. Therefore, in other words, this is the result. He's coming back to everything he said before. God gave them—you might even say—gave them up. But in this context, 
God gave them over to something. They filled their hearts, their minds with a substitute. That is going to destroy them, and God lets it happen. It's a slow process, but you can see it. We talked about addiction. Addiction is a form of God sometimes giving people up. Now, there's still time, as long as they're breathing, to repent and come into a saving relationship and attempt to try to reverse that. But if that's not reversed, it'll eventually just destroy people. So it can manifest itself in physical ways. It can manifest itself in a lot of other ways. Prison terms, etc. So God gave them over the term paradidomi, very common. It's used 119 times. We looked at this. It's used in context of betrayal. And sometimes it's translated to betray. 31% of the time dealing with Christ. And another 19% Christ handed over to the cross. So half of the usages are in that context in terms of Christ not only being betrayed, but you might even say Christ being arrested and sent to the cross. So it's used in that sense. It's used of believers being delivered to different things 18% of the time, and in this context, four times to give up something or to abandon. Just like Christ is abandoned by the culture, arrested and given up, to crucifixion, there's also a usage in terms of giving person up to something that is very destructive. And it's in this context that we have that usage. So God gave them up, and in this, verses 24 and 25, impurity of the flesh, lusts of their hearts to impurity, their own desires. Now, in general, the word lusts is not always in a negative sense. Here it's in a negative sense, because our nature is sinful. God can give you up to that. And by the way, this can happen to a believer as well. Now, God is going to intervene in discipline, and you're not going to lose your salvation, but if we are not diligent in growing, God can bring discipline as well. So, uh, we have this resulting dishonoring, and that takes many forms. We capitalized on addictions. Their bodies would be dishonored among them. That's where I get the physical aspect to it. And then 26 and 27, where we're picking up this morning, it not only has physical impacts, but it has moral degradation. So it's going to affect the whole moral realm. Paul uses primarily two examples where probably one of the end products of a culture, when it ends accepting these things, you can expect God to intervene. and It's not going to be fun, not going to be pleasant. Again, we have the abandonment of God, like we had in verse 24, verse 26. In fact, we have it three times. We won't look at the third one this morning. We may not even finish this one today. But anyway, abandonment of God, verse 26. For this reason, kind of picks up where he left off in verse 25. But it not only in, is related to verses 24 and 25, but it's related to the whole context. So, for this reason, in other words, because mankind has rejected the revelation, here's another example. For this reason, again, God gave them over. Same word, paradidomi. Gave them up. Or gave them to something that is going to eat them up. It's going to destroy them. God gave them over to degrading passions. That's where I get the moral idea, morality. Seems like three categories he's dealing with. Physical, and now moral, and we'll see a third category uh, when we get to verse 28. 
So God abandons them, and now he's going to deal with one way that that manifests itself. And I think lesbianism is a product of people who have gone down the path of rejecting God to the point that their, their whole moral being just has no orientation to what is right and what is wrong to the extent that it affects the whole moral area, particularly uh, this area of lesbianism. And by the way, this is the only passage that deals specifically with lesbianism. Uh, the other passages would include it. In other words, the other passage is kind of the umbrella of homosexuality and then more specific lesbianism. Female relations. For, in other words, this is the way that it can manifest itself in degrading passions. For their women exchange the natural function. The word that he chooses here for women is a rare term in the New Testament. It's not the common word gune, or there's there's other words that are referred to women in a high state or in a place of God's favor. This is a word that could be used of animals, females. In other words, there's a female cat. That's the word that he's using here. Here's a female human, okay? The women exchange. In other words, you have this replacement. You can't live in a vacuum. And the natural here is somewhat of a common word in terms of that that is designed by its designer, that that is normal, that that is natural, And in this context, that that God has designed, in other words, that that is normal or natural or by design, so women exchange the natural function, and in the context we're talking about sexual functions that God has created. Sex is God's idea, not man's. He designed it from beginning to end. It's a beautiful thing in its context, but what we're talking about here is the extreme perversion of it. So they exchange the natural function to what we call broadly homosexuality. So at this point, let's survey the biblical foundation for marriage and we'll contrast it with what we have in the rest of the passage. So you might turn to the book of Genesis and very quickly, we've talked about this on different occasions to some extent and Some of you may even remember a slide that I use to kind of summarize the biblical foundation for marriage or the biblical idea. I think I've got nine things on there that you can draw from the Genesis passage, and it's reinforced in other passages as well. You read through the scriptures. So let's take a look at marriage. First of all, thinking of Juliet, she just got married, so this would be fresh and exciting for her. Did everybody know that she got married recently? Yeah, her and George. I guess George. Where's George? He's at work. Okay. What does it say about when God created mankind? He created them what? In the, in the image of God. The image of God. But it's not just men or just not man. It's male and female. That's a different word there. That's man in a perfect state. This is before the fall. So in reality, the image of God is not uh, Steve and Gordon. That does not make the image of God. It's Adam and Eve, men and women. 
So from the whole creation, this is the design, this is the intent, male and female. So lesbianism, homosexuality, goes contrary. It's unnatural. It goes against the design that God has set up. Is the Hebrew word there theos? Yes, I believe so. I'd have, I'd have to look it up, but I, I would assume so. Yep. So by creation, the image of God from the very beginning is male and female. Not a male animal and a female animal, but it's talking in the context of mankind created in the image of God. So already from the beginning, it violates the whole design of God's creation. All right? Secondly, in chapter 2, beginning in verses 22 through 23, God institutes marriage. He institutes marriage before the fall. So this is his design from the beginning. In fact, the purpose of all of humanity in verse 28 is to be fruitful and multiply. That's fundamental. That's the basic. Again, female relationships can't multiply. Neither male and male relationships. So God instituted it to fulfill part of the purpose. Propagation or fruitfulness. Families. All that's associated with it. Thirdly, even in verse 23, we have distinctions in the roles. This is before the fall. The fall is not is not the cause of submission in the relationship or headship and submission. This is before. You get that from verse 23. You have the, the naming motif. Adam names Eve. She's woman. And he names her again later. He names her Eve in chapter 3. He gives her another there's another naming motif. That naming motif, God starts it in Genesis 1 when he calls certain things, certain things. He called the light portion of the day, day. He called the dark portion, night. God names. That means that God has omniscient insight, omniscient knowledge to be able to recognize characteristics. And being built in the image of God, he has put within us the ability to distinguish characteristics as well. So it shows intellect, reasoning, the ability to distinguish one thing from another. Adam is a name, the animals. He can distinguish between cats and dogs and horses, etc. He can make distinctions. He has intellect. He can reason. He can identify them. That's the first thing. The second thing, God is sovereign over the universe. He creates it. And he says, I want it to be identified with this label. And so he gave that responsibility to man. And in this context, Adam takes it up and he says, Ish and Isha. In other words, here's two identifiers, two distinctions. Distinction between man and a distinction between woman. And then later on, he names the woman Eve. Now, that naming is after the fall, but the naming in verse 23 is before. So it has this idea, and this is fulfilling the second purpose that God gave mankind, to have dominion over the earth. And it starts with headship, starts with leadership. So there's a distinction in roles in verse 23 from the very beginning. And there's other indications as well in terms of God's intent for, for men and God's intent for women. So you even have that. That's the design of marriage. That's out of whack in our culture today. All right? Don't talk about submission in this culture. Right? 
heterosexual. This goes all the way back to the design. So 23 and 24. Ish and Isha, men and women, distinctions, not Adam and Steve. You also have monogamous, one man, one woman. Now you might say, well, there weren't any other women. Well, that's kind of the pattern. If God had intended Adam to have two, he would have created two. He has more than one rib, right? Monogamous, verse 24. That's the biblical pattern. And this is reinforced elsewhere. But we have all of this in uh, the Genesis passage. Sixthly, it's the highest relationship. The Hebrew word there, azeb. This is to leave. It's a strong word. No mommy's boy. He's got to leave mommy. Or sometimes women are attached to their mothers as well. That needs to be broken because you have a higher relationship. The marriage relationship is the highest relationship. All other ties are to be broken. And if it are not broken, it's going to do damage, and there's going to be problems in the marriage relationship. In fact, you can trace a lot of problems today to not leaving mommy and daddy, okay? Being overly dependent on them or emotionally tied. The Hebrew word, leave. It's right there, verse 24. Highest relationship. Priority, attention, resources, everything goes into that family, into that marriage, into that marriage. Highest relationship. To be permanent, This is reinforced later. Permanence. Eight, there's a unity. They are to cleave. That's the Hebrew word. Dabak. Cleave. The idea of oneness. Completing the image of God. Got that? Now it's completed. This is God's design. Male and female, the image is fully expressed. So it's the cleaving. And again, you you distort that with all of these other forms that it comes in today. And then number nine, they in verse 25, by the way, all these others, uh, permanence, unity, are at least implied in verse 24. And then in verse 25, you have <coughs> transparency. It's not just an observation. Oh, they're naked. <laughs> Look at them. Funny looking. <laughs> I think it's in there for a particular reason. And the main reason is... Openness and transparency and intimacy and closeness, those those ideas in there. This is going to be contrast. The Hebrew word arom, arom, is going to be contrasted with the scheming of Satan in verse 1. You have a word play there. We won't get into it for the sake of time. So, this is the biblical foundation for marriage. Lesbianism, homosexuality, violates every one of those, virtually. Contrary to creation, contrary to design, it's contrary to what God instituted. It screws up all the roles because you don't have the roles anymore. It's heterosexual, that's the opposite. It's monogamous, and in most lesbian and homosexual relationships, they have hundreds of partners. There's no regard for oneness. There's no relationship there, really. It's permanent relationship. Well, there's no relationship in terms of a real marriage, etc., There's no unity, there's no transparency. So they exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. goes contrary to design, contrary to the biblical concept. Now, I should have, in fact, I've got in my notes, I didn't bring them, but I had a a bunch of things concerning the world's attitude. The world's attitude is, this is normal. In fact, you can't change it. 
People are oriented this way. This is this is the way they were born. They're, you can't change that. So don't even try. In fact, if you do try, then what you're doing is just basically harmful to those individuals. That's the world's attitude. Uh, it's not that it's unnatural. It's not that it's contrary to design, foreign to the thinking today. That's the biblical teaching right there. Verse 26 can't be any clearer. And by the way, this is one of the strongest passages condemning homosexuality. Another thing that the world does today, it tries to, those that are within the church, unfortunately, try to harmonize biblical passages, try to make them say that it's okay. In other words, Paul was unaware of this idea of sexual orientation. Well, he was unaware of it because it's totally contrary. It's unnatural. Or some of them just outright disagree with Paul. Paul, you know, Paul comes from a strict Jewish background. He, didn't, he wasn't enlightened, whatever. You know, they, and then they tried to reinterpret the text. What he's talking about here only pertains to these kinds of relationships with children, for example. That might be one way of trying to harmonize it. Paul's not talking about consenting adults, etc. So they try to get around all these passages. They get rid of all the Old Testament. Oh, that's Old Testament. We're not under the law. That sort of thing. That argument is used. Well, how do you deal with the New Testament passages? Well, you know, I just gave you a little way of getting around the Pauline passages. But it's unnatural. It's unnatural. And then in verse 27, we just have the counterpart of that. So if it wasn't clear enough in verse 26, he's going to basically say the same thing in verse 27 in terms of maleness. In the same way. He's just expanding his illustration here. And he's saying, everything I've said about female relationship is also true about the male relationship in the same way. Also, men abandon the natural function. In other words, that that is by design. That that is what intended by God. That that goes against Genesis 1.27. Male and female making the image of God. So they abandon that. The natural function of, of the woman... They burned in their lust or their desire toward one another. And again, what we have here, this is a different word for man. It's not the normal word that you would find context referring to man. It's the same idea as the femaleness, male dog as well. Burning, so an intensification, a distorting of natural desires, of that that God has put within men and women, and in this case, in in men. And they commit indecent acts, men with men. Is that clear enough? Committing indecent acts, clearly condemned. So let's review some of the Old Testament passages real quick. And I should have brought my notes because I wanted to read them. Do we have time to read them? Yeah, we got time. Somebody look up Genesis 19.5. And Judges 19.22. Jenny, you got the first one. What am I going to do when you leave? I'm going to lose our primary reader. Connie, you better not leave, Connie. (laughs) How about Leviticus 18.22? Ah, Linda. How about a man? 22.13. Shy. Oh, there's one. 1 Kings 14.24. Let's skip that one. I'll just kind of summarize what that one's talking about. Okay, who's got Genesis? No, Jenny's got that one, I think. Right? No? Okay. Now, this is Sodom and Gomorrah. This was not the only issue there. 
This is just one of the moral degradation at Sodom and Gomorrah, but it became famous. In fact, we call sometimes homosexuality Sodom, or sodomy, rather. But that was not the only issue there. There were lots of things, but this was one thing. And how is it described in 19.5? And they called to Lot and said to him, And who came to you tonight? Bring them up to us that we may know from Okay, so we may know them in an intimate way, in a sexual way. There's an example of it, and then later on, four cities are, are destroyed. Judges 19.22 is kind of similar, The just to give you the context. There's a Levite that is having a problem with his wife, and he goes and looks after her. In fact, she's an adulterous woman, and he's talking to the father of the woman, so his father-in-law. <laughs> So he's staying there, he invites him, says, you know, spend the night with me, we'll discuss this further. And then it's in Gibeah, so the men of Gibeah, we didn't visit Gibeah, by the way. We came close, Linda, to Gibeah. The men of Gibeah come, and what do they ask in 1922? Jenny. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, worthless men. Men of the city, worthless men. Surrounding them, surrounded the house, pounding the door. Bring out the man who came may have relations. Relations. Sexual relations. Now, the father-in-law objects, and he's not a very good father. He offers his daughter, and that's the story where she is raped and ravaged and killed, and, and then she's cut into 12 pieces and sent to 12 tribes of Israel. Ugly scene there. Anyway, there's two examples of it not only existing, but in context that are related to God dealing with it in a negative way. And then in the law, it's clearly prohibited in two passages, Leviticus 18.22. Got that one? Oh, Linda, go ahead. It is detestable or abominable. Yeah, that's just in the prior context, exactly. So that's a clear reference to homosexuality. And then we have Leviticus 20, 13. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them committed and punishment. Okay. And if you read the context, what's the penalty? Capital punishment, according to the law. So it's clearly outlawed. It's clearly prohibited. And it's not just for the nation of Israel. Now, it's in their law. This is part of their constitution, part of their law. But it has moral and spiritual implications as well. The New Testament makes that makes that clear. There were what were called male cult prostitutes. We have an example, 1 Kings 14, 24. And it appears that they were not for females. They were for other males. So their whole function was this whole area of sexuality. So that's the Old Testament description. You find nothing positive. It's abominable. It's sinful. Contrary to nature. You also have New Testament passages. Let's look these up. Who's got 1 Corinthians 6, 9? Here's one of the clear passages. Craig's got it. 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Who wants that one? Got it, Terry? 1 Corinthians 6, 9. You got it, Craig? Do not, uh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the key God? Okay, the unrighteous, kind of a broad, the unbeliever will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're a little confused as who might be an unbeliever, he gives a little list here. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor 
brief ten also because the list goes on. Because yeah, I want you to see it. It's just listed. In fact, he starts out with sexual sins, and then he, he continues to other ones. Thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh oh! If you go to the mall, you're in danger of not making it into the kingdom of God. Covetousness. <laughs> All right. But notice the the sex sins in there. Fornication, kind of the broad category of sex out not only outside of marriage, but outside of God's design. And then you have the more specific, adultery. Uh, at least one of the partners is married. Sex outside of that relationship. Such were some of you, yeah. They're converted. Yeah, the solution is trusting in Christ. And then there's a couple of others. Uh, he puts idolatry in the middle there, which... I don't know, maybe it's implying these are idolatrous acts. And then he says, there's a word there, effeminate. How's yours translated? Well, it says, after adulterers, no homosexuals or sodomites. Okay, the sodomites is the word for homosexuality. That previous word, New American Standard translates it effeminate. And it basically occurs two times in the New Testament. Once, it has the idea of softness. The first one talks about soft robes that kings wear, so it can refer to garments or chairs or whatever. And then uh, in this context, we have it in 1 Corinthians 6-9, where it's talking about probably the more passive one in that homosexual relationship. The Sodomite, as translated in that con- context, or in my version, it's homosexuals. So you have the effeminate, this is the passive one in the relationship, and then you have the active one. And they're put together there. And it's condemned with thievery, murder, etc. Alright? So there's a clear passage on it. First Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Terry? We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful. The okay, now he's going to define the ungodly, etc. The unholy... And irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers. For murder? Murders. That's clear, right? No one's going to argue that one. Go ahead. Same for, context. For adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else, whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. The word homosexuality, same word that we have in uh, 6 9. How did it translate it? Uh, perverts? Perverts. Yeah, same word. In fact, it appears in that context, in these contexts in Leviticus, the writer, uh, Moses, uses two words. One for, I can't remember the first one, I think it's males, and another word for intercourse. And then Paul seems to group the two together and make one, he seems to create one word, and it only occurs in two contexts, here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, Nine, I guess it is. But it's a clear reference to male and male intercourse, literally. And then we have the passage that we're talking about, and it's the clearest passage of all of them, where man is under wrath, and part of that wrath is poured out in these relationships. God lets people go the way they're inclined, their desires, and it's destructive. So that's the passage we're looking at. So moral degradation... It's not positive anywhere in Scripture. You have to read that into the text and twist all of the wording. 
Verse 18, this is just to kind of summarize some of the words that are used in this context. Verse 18, there's wrath against this whole area. Not just specifically that, but it includes the homosexual area. Wrath is against it. Verse 24 describes impurity and dishonoring of the body, which would include broadly this whole area as well. Nothing positive in here. 26, it's the women-female relationships there are described. I shouldn't say, I'm not going to use the word women. <laughs> we'll use the word female. Degrading, it's called degrading passions. It's not positive. So passions that really not only do damage and degrade, but eventually destroy. And by the way, the suicide rate amongst homosexuals and even lesbians is the highest of virtually any category. So it does end in ultimate destruction. Verse 27, 26 and 27, unnatural, contrary to design in both verses, referring to the female, referring to the male. 27, burning with desire. It uses a different word. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about a normal and a natural burning of desire, of what God really put in, in a heterosexual desire. He says you should get married. That's one of the solutions. He uses a different word here. He's talking about a destructive burning in this context. It's a burning that doesn't. you can't satisfy it. That's why they have multiple partners. It doesn't satisfy. It never brings peace. It never brings satisfaction. So it's a burning desire. It's called indecent acts. They're indecent. Nothing positive. And there's a resulting penalty. Receiving... This is where the wrath is poured out, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. It's wrong. There is a right and there is a wrong. There is a design. There is an intention that God has. This goes totally contrary to it. It's error. It's not just a little mistake. There's a penalty. There's a due penalty. It's going to do damage. just read an article in fact, it's an old world article, but it was the last one I got. I probably have two more in my, my stack of mail that I haven't got yet. But it talks about the effects, not just on the individual. Well, it doesn't concentrate on that, but it, it talks about these. Actually, it's a, it's a transgender, but we're talking about the same thing. Transgender, you could put in the same category. It's contrary to nature, etc. It has all the same characteristics. But it not only has an impact on the individual themselves, but the article was about the impact that it has on family. And one of the interviews was of a daughter. You probably, Some of you probably read that article. You read it, Connie. The impact on a daughter, how it just shattered her life. In fact, she was very uncomfortable because when she was putting, she didn't put on makeup at home because her father would watch her, and she knew he had already expressed that he wished he could put on makeup. And this started when she was a young girl, and it just kind of, distorted a lot of things. But anyway, the article is on that. So part of the penalty is your sin not only affects you, but it affects the case of families, your children, and it affects others as well. And it has ripple effects throughout, and it has an effect on, on culture. So this is the, the way wrath is poured out, is they're receiving their own persons. And it's not like God is, is, is bringing it. He's just letting the natural degradation and the natural consequences of sin work itself out 
and sin has destructive power in itself. Now, Could this be related to the Oh, yeah, that's one of the consequences. Yeah, AIDS, yeah. There's physical consequences. Yeah, absolutely. High suicide rates, violence within these groups. Part of what we experience is the violence towards us. So it has penalty. But real compassion, let's talk about it. We don't abandon them. In other words, they still have the potential to, in fact, they are in desperate need for the gospel message. And we need to figure out ways that we can not only be able to get the gospel to them, but we need to also uh, take other steps as well. Okay, so let's talk about real compassion. Real compassion doesn't allow people to destroy themselves, whether it be alcoholism or whether it's a compulsion to gamble or you know whatever, whatever the manifestation of sin. If you have a, a person that you care about, you, want, you don't want them to be destroyed by their own sin. Homosexuality is just another sin that destroys. In fact, everything, every sin destroys. And we, are, we want to help people overcome the consequence, the penalty, the, the due penalty of their error, no matter what area. In fact, to condone any sin is really, or to be tolerant of any sin regardless of what you want to put it into, as we saw in some of the passages, just listed with others. To condone it, to accept it, to tolerate it, is really the opposite of compassion. You're just basically saying, oh, I'm going to let you destroy yourself. I'm going to let you kill yourself. I'm going to let you work out all of these consequences that are going to have an effect on your family and all those that love you and all those that care about you. That's not compassion. Tolerance is not compassion. Tolerance of sin is the opposite of compassion. Does that make sense? So you want to reach out to these people. And I think the church makes a big mistake to outright reject these people. And or it also makes a mistake when it says, well, we're going to overlook it. We're, you know, it's okay. We're not going to go against the flow. We're, we're going to just accept you the way you are. Well, yes, we do accept them the way they are. But you cannot tolerate the sin. You've got to deal with the sin because you're letting that sin destroy. So there's the two mistakes. One, we, we shun them. We, you know, this is the worst thing in the world attitude towards them. It's in the list just like anything else. It's like going to the mall and lusting after those whatever clothes or whatever you lusting after. It's no different. It's just another sin. That'll destroy as well. So it's... Real compassion is not allowing people to destroy themselves. Linda. <laughs> I, I just think it's really pain, but you get sick. You're like, look, it's really hard to watch them. Out. Right. But you got to do what you need to do to help yeah, them come no, come out of it. Well, there's wrong get, ways to do things. Well, yeah, to help them. Right. Well, the basic, thing that pe- the basic thing that people need is what we're going to get into here. Help people find deliverance, and there's only deliverance in Christ. There's only deliverance in Christ. So the only real solution for all evil. It doesn't matter. Don't make these special sins. So the, 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 you don't fix the sin. You need to first fix the heart. That's right. right. That, absolutely. And then, and then, then God will fix it. Just like any other sin, whether it's alcoholism, any addiction. I also believe we are, that our job yeah. is to 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's why I'm saying it's, yes. Yeah, that, that doesn't work. Right. Yeah, there's a wise way, and I think there's a biblical way. And, and everything that we want to do first is try to get them to a point to be able to receive Jesus Christ, who he is the one that will deliver them. Does that make sense? So we reach out to them, and we love them. I, I don't don't right now, but I had for several years lesbian. They were the best tenants I had. Uh, lesbian tenants. They were the best tenants I had. I tried to love them to death. I did more for them than I did the Christian believers I had. Loaned them money, you know, gave them money, let them live when they couldn't pay rent, you know, like just all of that in order to be able to have the opportunity to share the gospel. Now, if we ever discussed it and I let them bring it up, I would. You know, tell them what I felt about the lifestyle, just like you would do a thief. You would, you know, oh, that's nice. Can I join you? <laughs> I mean, we don't tolerate that. I mean, it's not. But you have to be wise, particularly in our culture. Did you? You were going to have. I just thought the passion when they brought the adultery crowd sin. Yeah. And then very good. Said, right, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, it all goes back to you know, it says therefore, right? So they twenty-one. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's that's yeah. the root is right there. For, yeah, they're for dead. All, they're all non-believers. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and you that didn't work. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. Is there always a, a line? I mean, obviously, real compassion is not allowing people to destroy themselves, but on the same principle, you don't want to be judgmental, look at the log in your own eyes. So yeah, some yeah, seem yeah. To be kind of, yeah. Kind of, you can admit to them that you're a sinner, and that your sin, of whatever it might be, vacuuming, or what was your, <laughs> what was your addiction? <laughs> Speak up. That's right. Well, any, uh, Anything. Yeah. Right. Right. Very good. Yeah. And your lifestyle gives credibility to your words. Yeah. Very good. Okay. So the bottom line is they need salvation, just like the thieves, the murderers, the, the mall walkers that lust after new dresses or whatever. Have we become Sodom yet? Our culture culture may be beyond it. Closing thought. The issue of homosexuality, this is what I've been saying, is not different from all other sins. It's in the same lists as whatever. And Paul is not exhaustive in any of those lists. The two that he gave there are different. Some lists he leaves it out. All right? So it's no different. Juliet, again. Can you just say anything? You know, I'm out of whack. Yes. Very good. Yeah. You reflect it. Exactly. Homosexuality is an evidence of stage of rebellion toward this. In a culture. Yeah. And in an individual. Individualist. Yeah. They have rejected God in all these different areas and then mm-hmm. brought them. Yeah. True. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, I, I got to mention, there were two articles that appeared, I think, in April. <laughs> it was also on the transgender. I think I mentioned this way back then when we were in April. <laughs> I use those two articles just to remind you that one of the articles were interviews of people that went through the whole thing. In other words, the cross-dressing, all the way through a sex change, and the constant theme in all of those was that even when they went all the way through the sex change, it still did not satisfy. 
they were still unhappy. They still felt the same way as they did when they were children and they started cross-dressing. It didn't satisfy. And some of them, if not all of them in the article, had received Christ, and it wasn't until they received Christ that they felt satisfaction, and it wasn't only until then that they could start rebuilding their lives. Some of the damage was done and could not be changed, but it wasn't until they became believers that they found that whatever they were looking for, that peace, and it's only Christ that is released. And then he began to put their lives together. And some of them, one of them at least, has a ministry to people that are struggling. Uh, it's not only transgender, but it's this whole area. In fact, it's every sin. The issue of homosexuality is not different. All of it. Bob, why don't you close for Father, we are so grateful for your word, the health and salvation to our life of grace and view our own perspective of for good this week.